With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to the show. Today I'm chatting with musician, television host, commentator, and producer Sal Masakela. Born in Los Angeles on August 28, 1971, to a Haitian mother, Leslie Marie Lapierre, and South African father and iconic jazz musician, Hugh Masakela. Sal spent his early years in New York before moving to Carlsbad at the age of 16 where he was befriended by Momentum Generation surfers Taylor Knox, Rob Machado, and their cohorts, who helped usher Sal into the world of surfing and then skateboarding and snowboarding. He began his professional career as an intern at Transworld Publications in 1992, which he evolved into commentary roles at extreme sporting events, which he then parlayed into an on-air sideline reporting gig for ESPN, covering the 2003-2004 NBA season. He then took a job co-hosting The Daily 10, counting down the top 10 moments in pop culture and entertainment for the E! Network. He's been a mainstay host for X Games and NBC Sports Network through a contract with Red Bull Media House. He's broadcasted from the Olympics in 2014, and he's a host and executive producer for Vice World of Sports, a lifelong musician and songwriter. He's been recording under the moniker Alakazam for the past decade, and his music has been used in shows from HBO's Entourage to Showtime's House of Lies. He is a renaissance man, living a wildly unique experience with lots of inputs from tons of disparate cultures and places, responding outwardly through a range of talents, and that was really kind of my aim through this discussion, was to understand how to slow down long enough to process all of this stuff that we input and receive nowadays, let it steep long enough to be grateful for it, and then find enough time to create your own work. So Sal does a great job detailing that. Uh, He does it through explaining his own failures and then some new experiences that have helped him install new practices that are helping him create new habits. So we cover a lot of ground here today, and some of it is about illicit substance usage. So if you have kids around, please heed caution. But more importantly, um, I have a few disclaimers regarding that topic that I want to offer up at the end of the show. 
I'd spoil the evolution of our conversation if I gave those disclaimers to you right now. So uh, stick around at the end for that. And it goes without saying that Sal isn't advocating for anything. He's just one man sharing his own experience. And I think that's resoundingly evident as you listen to him. But my postscript disclaimers will provide a real helpful context to understand Sal's experience. So please, again, stick around for that. And then one other helpful bit of info. I mentioned Sal's father, Hugh Masekela, being an iconic jazz musician. Hugh passed away two years ago next week from prostate cancer at the age of 78. And so that's where Sal and I begin our conversation today. And in fact, we actually uh, start with Instagram. Sal posted something that I read while I was sitting on my sofa watching Chef's Table on Netflix. The post was long, earnest, but it was a bit vague about one detail uh, that he was just kind of alluding to in the post, and it really kind of invited inquiry. It was enough for me to pause Chef's Table and then send Sal a DM asking if he'd be willing to explain his Instagram to me on air. So that was the impetus for this conversation, and I'll go ahead and read that Instagram post to you right now. It reads, If you're willing to get out of your way, some truly epic stuff can take place in your life. At various points in this journey, I've performed standing in my own way at an elite level, Hall of Fame levels of self-sabotage. The idea being that by denying going after the things that I really want in life, I save myself from messy things like shame, failure, heartbreak, and by default, happiness, success, joy, hiding in plain sight. You walk past the mirror and you try not to stare too long so that you don't have to acknowledge that bullshitting yourself has become your full-time job. You love everyone else so that no one can tell how little you're loving yourself. It's an exhausting way to live, especially since you know no one is coming to save you. This weekend, I decided to step out of my own way, let go, and engage in some radical life therapy. I explored the entirety of my existence and saw myself in ways I couldn't dream of in a safety net of vulnerability, love, and protection. I got the keys now to a new set of eyes and a sharpened third one. My mind and my heart are in union for the first time in a long time. Now the real work begins, and I'm going to have a blast doing it. I don't get to hide anymore, and that's a beautiful thing. For everyone, my name is Salima Mabena uh, Masakela. Did I get that right? Salima Mabena Masakela. Yeah. And we're about to have all the fun. So I read that. <laughs> I wanted to know more about that. And I don't know why I feel so comfortable having very personal conversations with you, considering how little time we've spent together. Maybe you just went vulnerable the first time that we met, and I was yeah. down with it. I think our first conversation was like, you know, there's, if you're going to sit and, and and share space, you might as well be open. That's usually kind of my MO in general. Um, but not everybody's down for that. Right. You know? Um, and so you, you kind of, you, you kind of like look for people who are of the energy. Like, you, do you, you want to like talk about some real shit, you know? Yeah, and I think it's crazy. Like the, I didn't expect people to react the way they did to that post. That was just something that I felt like I wanted to say. Um, but the amount of messages from 
people that I know, but mostly from just like followers and writing me very, very, very personal notes about the manners in which it resonated with them, the manners in which they were feeling the same in their own lives, um, thanking me for, for being someone who's well known, but that's not afraid to like be honest about where they're at in their life. Um, and it was a trip because that wasn't that wasn't the intention and it's just but it was a reminder that like especially in our social media age everybody is is seems to be competing to showcase the highlight reel and very little of and showcase the highlight reel um and do very little of like talking about the hardship like and to me if you're doing this life right then you're experiencing some hardship um and yeah i don't know that's just kind of like where i've been at i i when I, I lost my father in january of 2018 end of january and you know you can be empathetic towards people who are grieving and thoughts and prayers and you, you, you're genuinely interested in, in, in their well-being, well-being and checking in on them. Um, but you just have no idea what it is until you go through the thing. And it kicked the shit out of me in, at, at such a, like, at a physical level, at a mental level emotional level and at a personal level in that suddenly i had to a, 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 had to look at my life from a very at this journey from a very sort of finite perspective that i just hadn't had to do yet like i've just been on some real peter pan shit um and then my dad who i always saw as 100 percent like this guy's impenetrable. Like he's gonna live to be a hundred. He was playing, you know, he was playing a hundred shows a year as a, as a musician, traveling musician. In his late later in life. Yeah, I really? mean, until he got sick in April of 2017, when wow. when the cancer really took its toll, he stopped touring. But up until then, he'd been playing like a hundred shows a year. Crazy. And loving it. So, and staying current, you know, and just really my dad always lived in the now in whatever the time period was you know and so he was such a great touchstone to you know he was constantly collaborating with younger musicians etc like he just wanted to be about what was happening now and take the knowledge and wisdom that he learned from the past to serve that but not walk around with that attitude of like well all the shit that has has happened in the day is like nothing in compared to my day and you kids have it so my dad was never about that he was curious he wanted to understand how people were living now and what was informing their creativity and we had a interesting and challenging uh relationship growing up because um my dad was an addict and he was a a man without a home in that he was a political exile of South Africa for 30 years during apartheid. And so he was constantly traveling and trying to, he was trying to find happiness. Like he didn't take citizenship anyplace else. Um, and he attained an immense amount of fame at a young age while still struggling with his identity. 
and my mother and him split up when I was really young and because of that I got sporadic and and sort of a different sort of our relationship was more almost as friends than father and son Hmm. for a very long time and that because you kept a distance or um it was just because our time together was spent like on the road like I was going on the road with him with a bunch of jazz musicians from the time the earliest times I can remember was like that was my field trips with my dad it wasn't going to the park or little league it was like going and being in jazz clubs from like five or six years old and like in the summer times going on road trips with him in the band for a couple of weeks at the time or going and being a roadie with him you know when i was 15 with paul simon on the graceland tour for a couple of months because my dad took me out of school and having the best time ever yeah but not really based in any sort of day-to-day reality of what my life was yeah and it was in these chunks but never really consistently and also um in the midst of some real battles that he had personally um with substance is his addiction public knowledge yeah okay definitely yeah he wrote about it in books and okay um he battled for a long long time and then he he got he got his shit right in like the late 90s which was when i was just starting to come of age and and find my feet um my television career didn't start until I was about 28, 29. Um, and that was really when we were just getting started, getting our shit together. I was actually more still in the action sports industry. I was I was doing a, this brand called Alphanumeric. That, yeah, I remember um, that. Um, my friends and I had started, and that was... Television was still... It was something I was doing on the side for fun, but I didn't know it was going to be um, a career. And that's, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, that's actually when my dad and I started to become father and son. Mm. Um, so anyway, I guess the back half of my, my relationship with my dad was the, actually the most, the most powerful like father and son portion while also having this best friendship. And he really became my guide. Like, my dad wasn't my guide in my younger part. I was a fan, and I was, like, blown away by what he was doing, but he wasn't my guide. Um, And in this back half, as we found our place together, and he found a respect and and had pride for me for what I I was able to create, we had this whole new type of, like, amazing relationship Mm. um, as peers in a certain way, which I never thought he'd accept me as. And it was rad. It was almost unfair what that gave me. And we had a blast and we were making music together in the last few years. And then, you know, prostate cancer walks in and is like, sir, we're punching your clock. Did you feel like there was any unfinished business? I did. Or reconciliation? Yeah, I I felt like there was some unfinished business. I felt that definitely there was some reconciliation. Um, My father's exit wasn't Tuesdays with Maury. You know, you read a book like that and you think, man, I hope I can, can have that time where yeah. my, my dad, like, you, you know, your father or your mother even is going to download you, like, all of it. Mm-hmm. That wasn't it with my dad. It's so difficult to have kind of intimate, real, meaningful conversations with parents, you know? And I know um, you love them intensely, but that's hard to tell them. Yeah. You know? And like, I've just not, I mean, my parents know that I love them and I know that they love me, but like, 
given the chance knowing that there's a finite like if they got sick then you would be much more inclined to have those conversations Mm. but i'm not comfortable with it like it would there'd be a learning curve of just figuring out how to even communicate the things that i would feel a need to communicate yeah I, I, i tell everyone now like and my dad and i were we were really open with each other ironically and like we were we were open and whole with each other and could tell each other that stuff until he got sick. And then Why did that prevent you? What was different about him being sick? He shut down. He, he wasn't willing to communicate. He, my dad didn't feel like, like the idea that this thing was going to beat him oh. was not open for conversation. So you're not going to come and sit in here um with sad eyes and want to talk you know say speak your peace to me because you're speaking your peace to me means that i'm peacing out right so we're not not no one's having those conversations with me wow and that even what i just said like he didn't say that right but you had to assess it but it had to be assessed it was known and so we we and it, we spent time like hanging in the in like in cool ways like one of my favorite memories last memories with my dad was like with him at his house um and we would watch soccer together i was in south, Af- south africa in johannesburg where he lived and then all the that 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 succession of um dave chappelle um comedy specials came out in the beginning of uh, 2018, and he had the, the, the two big ones. And um, I had my laptop and I asked my dad if he wanted to watch, and climbed into bed with him, and we watched Chappelle together. And my dad was frail at that point, and like, um, didn't have a lot of energy, but us sitting together watching Chappelle at like peak Chappelle performance my dad was laughing in a way that I hadn't heard in a year, like dying laughing. And, um, it was like us, it was, that was us again. And in some ways, maybe we didn't need to do all those, those things, you know? Yeah. Um, at the end of it, he looked at me and he goes, man, I was friends with Pryor, man. You know, I hung out with him. I partied with him. We did everything. Richard Pryor was the best, but I'm telling you, man, this boy Dave, I think he might have just kicked Richard out of the top spot. Wow. This is amazing. And I just remember that moment, like, I was just, what the fuck, like, you know, and I, we, we hung out, next thing you know, he was asleep, and, you know, that was, that was maybe two months maybe maybe six weeks before he died Mm. and um it was such a gift i I, a year later i'm in south africa dealing with some um estate stuff and and a memorial for my father and dave chappelle's playing a series of of secret shows in south africa and i land in johannesburg and a friend of mine um texts me and says hey I saw that you, on the gram that you're coming home. Like, I'm actually working with Dave on his shows. There's two. There's a show the night you get here. Do you want to come? I was like, absolutely. 
So I landed, grabbed my friend Josh, and we go to this uh, Monte Casino to see Chappelle play. He puts on a masterclass. I, I to this day, like I tell people that I don't think I've ever seen anyone do anything live at the highest level like I saw Chappelle do that day. Like maybe Kelly. Maybe surfing with Kelly in Fiji. Witness, witnessing some shit like that. But I never just need never seen someone just in like that level of zone for two and a half hours. Like just and everyone in the room knew it. Mm. And at the end my buddy comes back and he's like, Dave wants to meet you. I was like, What are you talking about? He said, No, I told him you're here. He wants to meet you. We go back to his dressing room and he's just sitting there chilling you know he's got a little whiskey or whatever and we start talking and he starts telling me stories about my dad and like my dad's early career and like discography of like certain records and certain times and how much his music had made a difference like overall for him and I'm sitting there and I'm doing the math and it's like it is literally a year to the week. No way. And I said, Dave, can I tell you a story? And I, I, I told Dave, you know, the whole story I just told you. And then at the very end, what he said about him and Pryor. And he just sat there like speechless. And he like, he was choking back tears. And he grabbed my hand and he's like, man, you have no idea the gift you just gave me. Thank you. And, like, in that moment, like, there was that, like, there in the room, um, you know, with us. Um, and it was a trip. And I guess the bigger picture of all this uh, is grief. Like, we don't talk about grief. We don't talk about what that journey is and what those layers are like um, of grief. And it was grief um, that kicked the shit out of me. Like, I just couldn't, I didn't know which way was up for months and months and months. And once everyone goes away from being there for you um, and letting you know their condolences, et cetera, et cetera, then you have to figure out how to live. And it's like, oh, you don't get, you're not the same person anymore. Like, I spent the first part of it being like, okay, when do I get back to, and then you come to the realization that like, no, you don't, you're never going to be that person again. Like, everything is new. And it just began this real deep dive assessment of like, who am I and what do I want the rest of this shit to be? And my dad's death suddenly brought up a level of, forced me to ask a level of accountability of myself that I hadn't yet even realized um, that I needed to. You talk, you started out by talking about, um, people not understanding unless they go through a similar experience, you know, like you can be sympathetic to somebody, but you don't know until you go through it. What we'll get, what I want to ask you is what were things that were actually helpful and valuable to you? Like how do people, what's the appropriate way to respond to somebody going through a loss like that? But I'll start by saying I'm wildly uncomfortable with that too. If I know a good friend of mine loses a family member, it almost feels not adequate enough just to give them condolence. Just be like, hey man, I'm sorry for what you're going through. Because I know I can't relate. And I know that that's actually not that substantial, but I can't say nothing at all. Mm -mm. You can't just ignore it. 
or what's even worse is if they post something like that on social media it's like is a double tap adequate here like i need to go, i need to go like show them and give them a hug but like maybe they're grieving right now and they don't want to hear from me like i don't even know how to manage those things or handle them but what was impactful for you with your friends i think that social media has fucked it up because like you said um a comment and some emojis and a double tap and to a degree we're conditioned to think like we've checked in exactly that checks the box for me moving on that is not a thing right um even like the myriad and myriad of text messages that i got i didn't even get to to and in emails and dms and any of that i didn't even get to begin to process those till like six weeks after do you even want to because that almost feels like a burden in addition to the grief. I didn't go through all of it, but I did. It did feel immensely good to have that energy okay. and know that like, wow, you're reading these comments and you can feel people's energy and their those condolences and those thoughts and prayers and love. That gets you through like the shock period. That's how you survive like that shock period, which for me, what I'd say was like, probably like two months like the real tears and the real like collapse of and, and and just reality of the loss didn't begin for like two months and my friends that made it a point in the first six months to consistently continue to check in on me and ask the hard questions and just be like, I'm coming over, man. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Or like, if you want to talk, I can, I can be there for you just to listen. If you don't want feedback or anything. And knowing that I had those places and people sort of forcing me to be like, hey, this is what friendship looks like. We need you to accept it. Um, was incredibly helpful. Yeah. Um, because you'd keep them at arm's length if given the choice. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. I, I spent days just yeah. in this house doing nothing yeah. for me within the first six months. That was a regular, when the waves would come and then you just be days, you're like, okay, shutting everything down, canceling everything. I'm not moving. I can't, I can't move. And were you working during that time? I was okay. Yeah, I went. I went back to work, and I worked through the tough times when I needed to. Um, yeah, and then I just, then I just started taking a look and, and honoring grief, and understanding that like this whole mentality we have of like, hey, how's such and such doing? You know, they're really they're doing so well. Like, they went back to work already, and you see them with their family, and they're they're. They're, 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 they threw themselves back into it. Like, I think they're good. No, they're not good. They're doing what they have to to survive, but they're not good. And it's that understanding. And if you really, you know, if you know that you are a dear and true and close friend to someone, not being afraid to ask those, those tough questions and just to check in on them regularly. Mm -hmm. um, I... I, it makes a difference. So I um, like to be alone, and I think my default is to like you know stay home and be alone. 
but I realize that not everybody's that way. Yeah. And I'm reminded of that all the time. I've had a friend, I talked about this recently on the podcast, like a friend who's struggling with addiction, went into rehab, was clean for six months, relapsed. And during the relapse, I knew I hadn't heard from him in a while and I knew I should check in, but I'm busy mm. in my life. I just got a bunch of things to do today and I just move on. And then come to find out he had relapsed and I felt a bit of guilt about he really needed me. And um, a, my younger brother is going through something recently and it's like I don't check in nearly as frequently as I should because if I was in that same situation, I would want some privacy. But that's not what they want. And I'm actually reminded about how gratified I am through human connection and relationship. Mm. And the reality is everybody is, you know. It's also a big difference between what you want and what you need. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes you don't realize what it is um, that you need until it's like shown to you. And I think it was it was also like those people who months later sent me those condolence notes. Yeah. And like I'm thinking of you. And people who had been through the same situation. I had a friend who took me out to breakfast and he brought me this book um, called Father Loss. How Sons Grieve with the Loss of Their Fathers. And he's like, I know you're not good yet. Yeah. Someone did this for me. Check this out. Yeah. This And it helped immensely. And I've paid that book forward to like two other people. Sure. Who are a year or two down the road. Just because you know, like, until you figure out how to process that grief, you're not really moving forward. Right. And you, you see people who... You see those people who just never were able to overcome like this big event in their life, whether it be loss or trauma or what have you. And if if you can't cut the cords of what it is, what it does to you to weigh you down, if you can't learn how to honor it and let that part go, you don't get to move forward. Well, certainly you got to honor the grief and the grieving for a period of time. But what was healthy for you to move forward? What was there... There was a, a few Hobbies, things. habits that you... Surfing took a different shape, from, definitely. Um, I started riding way more fun boards um, and just really tr- trying to go out and feel and not going out and trying to like surf the best waves on earth. Had you stopped surfing during that time? For a little while, yeah. Yeah. It took me a few months to get back in the water. Um... Actually, the the most impactful sort of big break turnaround that you're going to make it through this was my birthday, like eight months after my dad passed. I could feel a big wave coming in anticipation of my birthday. I was super depressed all of August of uh, last year, and I felt it early on in the beginning of the month. I was like, I got to do something. I'm I'm in a bad place. And um, I was drinking a lot. And, and trying to do whatever I could um, to numb things. Um, and I was going to go to Burning Man because I thought, well, there's a place where you can just fucking send it and you have no idea what it is. And I've heard some, some people come back from there with a pretty good sort of, all right, that was a hard reset. And then... Um, a friend of mine that I'd met here in Venice um, was organizing, had this, had, had this uh, breathwork, meditation, freediving 
um, yoga, Ayurvedic eating 10-day trip that she was doing to this island called Nui, which is like between Tonga and New Zealand. And um, you had an opportunity to swim with humpback whales. And I saw it on Instagram. She was like, oh, we just had somebody drop out uh, of this trip. We're looking for one person. I tapped into the site, saw what the dates were. They were literally the only dates I had like available without a shit ton of work in the front or the back. And I sent her a DM. I was like, hey, is this still a thing? And she said, absolutely. Please, her name is Hanley Prinsloo. Um, she's just like a legendary freediver, world champ freediver that runs these retreats and she's an ocean um, conservationist and she had the trip she had it open it was like a week and a half later for me I bought a ticket to this place this island this country called Nui that I'd never heard of and I went and it was the first time that I'd taken a trip to like an island body of water without a surfboard in my hand and I went to do something that I knew nothing about uh, spent all this time in the surface of the skin of the ocean and developed a relationship with it there, but really didn't have any need to see what lied beneath other than like fighting for my life to come up. Yeah. <laughs> and that trip changed my life. That trip like just allowed me to process, first of all, the island's like 40 kilometers around. It's one of the newer islands on earth. So it's mostly like you know, volcanic rock. There's no beaches. Um, it's just like these sheer cliffs that descend thousands of feet. Like you go out a few hundred yards uh, on this reef and then like, whoop, wow, gone. Are there hotels on the island? Or um, there's there? one hotel. Okay. We stayed in like these little bungalows. There's 1,200 people, maybe 2,000 people that live on the island and no one locks their cars and there's right. no Wi-Fi. And it was the just most radically alive ocean I've ever been in mm. in my life. And I learned, we learned how to, um, how to free dive, like big long fins and like do the breath work and meditation. No amount of athletic ability like is going to make a difference in what you do. Right. It's, that's, it's a mental game and understanding how your body is working and trusting what your body does when you're not breathing. Confronting fear. Confronting fear. You know, passing all those waves that tell you like, you're going to die. And then passing through these things and going like, oh, that's not a thing. I'm still down here. My, I got there. The, the static hold we did the first time was 145. And um, I left at 343. What? Holding your breath for 343? In 10 days. Have you? Like um, on some Healy, Healy yeah. light shit. I wonder how long he's going now. He's probably like five, but... Um, it, have you continued to practice that? Uh, I practice the breath work. Yeah, I've gone on a few free dives, but um, I haven't been able to like go pursue it. Yeah, but like the next time I go to Fiji, like I'm bringing my fins. The next time I go to a place where I know I'm going to be able to go get weird, I'm going to I'm bring, right. bringing my fins right. now in my surfboard bag. Right. Um, it just changed. It was just a different way to experience it, and I mean, I swam with with humpbacks like encountered and engaged with like humpback whales there was one that came and floated up from the depths and i just had to stare down with it for like 10 minutes what and it was like maybe 20 minutes maybe it was like 20 30 feet below me and just looking up at me 
for 10 minutes. That's crazy. It was the wildest It's like a school shit. bus. Yeah, like a, like a bus. And then at a certain point, then his homies come by and like swim by you. And like, that's a submarine with fins. And it's an eye like a frying pan. And what in the world? And then the three of them like take off and like just hit the afterburners and shoot down below the surface. You can't see them. And then we come up and they do like a breach party for us and then take off. And you're like, okay. There's I, no words to even process it. You just have to go back to your room and just... Yeah, right, and breathe and cry. Silence. And on that trip, like, that was the first time my dad came to me. Like, I saw my, like, my dad's presence, and we, like, had a conversation and began to make peace. What? Yeah, on that trip. Wait, you saw, like, a physical Like, not apparition? in my room. No, but in my, like, a dream. Like, a oh, very, okay. very real... It was the first time that I had a real, like felt real full present dream with whatever the version my brain was conjuring of of my dad no longer here were you awake or asleep i was asleep were you lucid uh lucid enough to like, yes to, so like you contact you recognize that this is probably a dream but this is somewhere between reality yes. and spirituality yeah and full like engagement and i can develop a question think of a response to his question yeah what is that? It was surreal. What is that, do you think? <sighs> After the thing that I last just did a couple of weeks ago that inspired the post. Which we're going to get back to. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to figure it out. I think... I, I really do feel like energetically it's... It's some sort of a spiritual connection. Um... I felt like he was letting me know that he was okay. Like that was, like I really is, is is what I felt in my heart. It didn't it didn't feel that it it felt that real, and it didn't. It it just felt I felt it in my heart. It wasn't like oh I had a weird dream. It was like it was it was that impactful that it turned a corner in the grief that. I could have never imagined. And if I wouldn't have made the choice to go there, I know that's not, it wouldn't have happened unless it happened in the midst of those circumstances. I mean, it was a confluence of events that primed you to even be able to accept it and be able to hear it and see it, you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, that, that trip was a, that was a game changer. That was the beginning. And I think that trip last year just made me start to be far more explorative in what self-love looked like as far as taking care of myself right. is concerned. And right. that was that was the start. It was like that was the first time that I'd gone on a on a trip that wasn't that was the first time I got on a trip that I can remember without a board bag of some kind. Or work related. Work related. Yeah. In I don't know, almost thirty years. Um did you ever make it to Burning Man? No. <laughs> and do I you don't, plan to? I don't know if I need Burning Man. Yeah, I hear you. Um, That's how I feel about it. Especially after yeah. what I just did. Yeah, yeah, I really, yeah. I don't think that I that I need Burning Man, but you never know. So the Instagram post, was that a drug experience? Um, I would call it a plant medicine experience, yes. Tell me about it. I decided to... Um, 
to to experience ayahuasca. That's what I thought it was. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Where where'd you do it? I'm not gonna say. Was it in the U.S.? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, did you have shaman? Did you shit your pants? I like, had give a, me the details. I had an incredible guide, um, who. I guess her business card would say shaman, but she wouldn't consider herself one. Um, more there to, to provide uh, protection and a safe space and okay. to create like a container right? Um, of where you can be safe, be vulnerable, feel love, and be able to wholly experience this thing in a, in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. And... It was amazing because she also had like this incredible sense of humor, which I wasn't expecting. I was like, "Wait, there's, there's, there's jokes." I, I didn't not, I didn't think there would be jokes. Right. And on the second day, I, I said to her, "I said, um, and you're processing, and you're just like in a whole different mode. I mean, it's three days of like your ego being locked in the trunk of a car." Do you ingest it just once or repeatedly throughout this this, this, in this process? It was twice. Okay. Um, But on the second day, I asked her. I was like, "Um, "So what's up with it? Like, I didn't think it would be fun or funny." And she said, "The medicine is serious. Like, I don't. There's nothing that I can do to make it more serious. That's not going to help. It's already serious. This is a very serious thing. But we're all after." light everyone's trying to walk out of here in a lighter version of themselves with a better realization of who they are and hopefully being able to like clean up the hard drive a bit and so yeah we're going to be light as much as we can be because there's going to be plenty room of room um for it to be serious without anyone trying yeah and that was um that was dope was it a group experience? Yes, it was okay. a group. There were 17 of us. Okay. Um, and you drank it? Yeah. And what? how long does it take to kick in? How long does it last? And what do you do during the high or the trip? Uh, you drink it. And like once you drink it, you're like, okay. That was the door of the plane closing. You feel it immediately? No, 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 no. It's just the realization that, okay. like, you're on this flight, and we're going. Okay. I had a lot of fear about doing it for a long time, for years. But it kept showing up. It kept showing up. It would show up in conversation. It would show up with people that I hadn't seen in a long time. And then they're telling me their experiences. I'm like, why does this thing keep showing up? And... The more conversations I would have with people and their experiences, um, the more I was kind of really blown away. And everyone said the same thing. Like, look, it shows you, it shows everybody a different thing. Um, and no one told me to go and do it. They just shared their experiences with me. Okay. I read a review of the Michael Pollan book, How to Change Your Mind. And I had read... The Omnivore's Dilemma that he wrote like 10 years ago. And I just thought he was a dope writer. And I was like, hmm, this dude's going to break down psychedelics? I'm, I'm, he broke down food for me really well. 
let me let me let me take a dip in. And this book is brilliant because he's at he, he writes to you at an eye level as 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 he's one of us, but then is also able to pull in all of the science, etc., and point of reference, and you know what's happening at a scientific level um, with synapses, etc. And about halfway through, my fear changed to respect. I have respect for this thing that I've never done. I don't know, but I'm, I have some empirical data here of what it is and what the experiences are. And that allowed me, once I changed from fear to respect, it allowed me to set an intention. And then the setting of the intention of what I would want to get from it allowed me to prepare at a mental, emotional, physical, spiritual level so that by the time I got there, did the opening ceremony, that did the breath work and then ingested the thing. It was like, okay, I bought this ticket. Let's go. And my intention was like, have the ability to let go and walk away from this with self-love. What's that going to take? I knew that I was loved and protected and could feel that in my heart. So like nothing that was going to happen to me in there um, was going to change or break me. And I felt that support at a spiritual level and like the whole stock of my life and then the most important tool that i had was my breath okay breathing is everything that's interesting i mean i get it but i hadn't heard that discussed with ayahuasca specifically breath yeah breath 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 and fortunately i do breath work meditation three days a week that's become like a solid core part of of uh of my life so i know that part really well and my breath was what got me through it. Um, so, how long? Five hours. The, the trip first trip last? was like five and a half, six hours. And what are you during, doing during that time other than focusing on your breathing? You close your eyes and you just drop in. And it's like, uh, for me, it was like a series of, um, you know, like old school theaters where the curtains. Curtains? Yeah. Like a series of curtains. Like opening, opening. Were they opening. revealing things to you? Yes. Like the first portion of it for me was basically like a VR existence inside of all of the Alex Gray paintings you've ever seen. Like sacred geometry, all of the color, all of it. Like in ways that, but you're in it and you're just like, <laughs> what? So truths about the universe are being revealed to you. Right off the bat. And I remember like just started laughing uncontrollably at like the wonder of it and then like crying tears of joy at the freedom of being able to like, holy shit, this is what it is. Okay, what else? And then you i i started basically journeying through like all of the most impactful moments of uh, my life as well as taking stock of like generational energies and lives i may have walked through before to get here and understanding sort of the traumas and triumphs of the, my ancestors before me and what it took for me to exist here and maybe and seeing 
some of the things that I maybe was still carrying traumatically that I needed to like clip because that's not my story. I don't need to like keep pulling that part of my existence. Um, as well as like just major, major, major incidents within my life I was able to make peace with. I was able to make peace with people, like have conversations with their, with their energy, like with their representation of them in, in this journey, in these visions, and like make peace with some of the worst things that have ever happened to me in my life. That and you've like been carrying around for Carrying decades. around for, for my whole life. Like I was able to forgive myself in ways that I never thought I could um, for things that the roles that I played in hurting others. I was able to make peace with my ex-girlfriend in a way that I had never been able to in the last seven years. And it was literally impeding me from like having any shot at having a real relationship. And I was able to like weep and go through it and like I mean, the amount of crying, but like tears of joy and like expulsion of like letting go that I experienced in the midst of like also like wondrous laughter at like the magnificence of the universe and like the sheer power, like the the infinite power of what love is was just mind boggling, like beyond mind boggling, beyond comprehension. And the people that that mean the most to me in my life. Um, showed up in various ways to let me know that I was loved and cared for and that that they had my back. Do you believe that this stuff is... Um, it sounds like it's all around you anyways on a daily. And I guess you said you locked your ego in the trunk of the car. Mm. Is it ego that prevents? Is I believe so. Is that what the ayahuasca is dissolving solely, or is there more that it's dissolving? Like, why don't we have access to these truths without ayahuasca? I don't know the answer to that question. But I know that we are in our brains all the time. This, for me, was a descent into my mind and into that 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 two lane service road between my mind and my heart that connect my energy and it was about repairing like heavy heavy repair work to to rebuild that connection between my mind and my heart and like descending into the mind as opposed to like i believe that we spend most of our our function in our heads but not in our mind, heart, energy. You have to, to advance in life and to pay your mortgage and to like navigate, you know? I I feel like children are innocent and you hear about children having these, you know, being able to see their grandfather who died before they were ever even born, but they know the color of their grandfather's favorite shirt, you know, and the mom starts crying because the kid delivers that information. Life happens to you as you grow and you get cynical and you do start getting traumatized and carrying that trauma with you and it feels like that all starts to corrupt that innocent naivete or access to whatever that other dimension is that you're talking about and that the ayahuasca strips away all of that artifice and trauma and scar tissue and gets you back to that innocent state a hundred percent the only thing that matters is like 
love and dancing and laughing, you know, and and full full vulnerability, and in a way that like I just have never ever experienced before. And mind you, I was in a room with seventeen people. I knew four people in the room. Um, I didn't know anyone else. And then you know you come out of this first trip and we're all just looking at each other like, yo, was your shit? We, yeah? You want to talk about it? All right, cool. And next thing you know, you're either like laughing uncontrollably with someone or like crying in their arms or they're crying in your arms. And then when we would do the exchanges and talk about like what people went through, and we also did the very beginning, the intention of like what people were going go there for, like, Nobody, there's no hiding. And you also feel like seen and loved by every person in the room. Like no one's rolling their eyes. Like everyone's looking at you with love. And so you're just going to share. And, you know, I heard people talk about like, I heard dudes talk about being there because they just felt that they were in, in quite inadequate, you know, husbands to their wives. And they were trying to like figure out how to step up. And what they needed to shed so that they could step up and honor this person that is clearly doing their part, but they're not doing theirs. And to see, like, dudes walk in and own their shit and do so in front of other women. And, and, and women that were talking about, like, the immense amount of, 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 of trauma and things that they experience on a regular basis that they're trying to work through and then from their childhoods. And, but not, no, none of it was like, what was me? And I think... Everybody is so afraid of being judged or being looked at as damaged that everyone, but most of us try to walk around like we have our shit together. For sure. Nobody has their shit together. Anyone who tells you that they have all of their shit together is full of shit. But we walk around societally like feeling like, all right, cool, I got the right clothes on, I got the right car on, etc. That's going to protect people from having to see. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but we've used them as used it as a way to be like, well, shit, everybody else must be like, that must be amazing. Their life is amazing. Yeah. Well, if you're vulnerable, people people take advantage of you. You know what I mean? Like honestly, I agree with what you're saying. We are all that way, and so. Why is vulnerability so hard? Because we are looking at vulnerability as the, through the eyes of weakness, not vulnerability as a fucking like powerful power. source yeah. of strength. Yeah. And vulnerability is power. It is, it is strength. Brene Brown right there. Did she say it like that? Yeah, I think that's her TED talk is like the power of vulnerability. It's, it's a superpower. Yeah. If, you look at it through that lens. If you look at it through a fear lens um, and, and through society's version of telling you that it, you're, you're weak, then you're going to be weak. Mm -hmm. But vulnerability with, from, a, from, a, from a perspective and intention of like trying to be and activate your whole self, I don't believe that's fuck with, fuck withable. I agree. At all. Yeah, well, um, there's something... Based on the like, just on the podcast, the conversations that I've had, where people are more vulnerable, they get an outpouring of support. That's remarkable. Like, people want to be supportive, and they don't want to tear you down. But I think people will be the worst version. They will tear you down if you 
front and you try to act a certain way, then they feel like they need to kind of poke through that. But if you just come with a guard down and you are vulnerable, the reality is I think people are good natured and they want to be supportive. True. Because they relate to it. They go, I, I know what it's like to deal with depression right? or for my wife to leave me. Right. So if you say that openly, they go, oh my God, this person is being more truthful. You feel endeared to them. Yeah. Connected to I, them. I, I, I agree. And also some people are just assholes. And they want to take a shit on everything. Honestly, though, like fewer. I agree with you. I encounter a lot of them on a daily basis, but you can do them a gift. Of, the vulnerability does them a gift. It and does. It breaks them down. And, I, and, I, and actually, like those people are crying to be heard. Totally. Exactly. They want to be heard and felt. And the only way that they're able to do so um, is by lashing out. There's some sort of like catharsis they get by being heard and being seen in that manner but if you met them in real life you probably would have a dope conversation with them which is crazy it is i remember oprah i watched oprah a lot when i was a kid like get home at three o'clock abc like trying to catch it and um one thing that she said that always stuck with me a lot of things but one of the things was everybody's seeking the same thing and it's simply validation from other human beings and I've found that to be really true on every level. Like Absolutely. whether you are the president of a country, the leader of a country, the CEO of a company, or just some people wear it more obviously than others, but it's true across the board. There's no way on earth that Fred Trump ever told Donald Trump that he was a shit and that he loved him from here to the moon on a regular basis because there's just no way yeah because he's seeking it so desperately in so many in could you imagine being like like 76 years old yeah and every day having to figure out like what the most obnoxious manner it is to like be the loudest voice in the room and and feel heard and have attention right like yo what happened to you so that I, your like like the servitude of your ego is enough for you to like put the balance of like millions and millions of people's like existence, and I don't even mean that like at like you know the immediacy of the of like a nuclear button. I just mean like that energy trickle down in the manner in which it reverberates and like causes people like these real wave traumas and be like, I got that. That's not a real thing. Like where can I go to hide to not have to pay attention to this madness that's happening? Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I think you, like you said in every person, my, I mean, and I think for me, one of my favorite things in the day is that moment I have with the barista, the moment that I have with the person in line at a store the moment I have with a security guard checking in to a building or a waiter or a busboy or strangers. I love incidental contact with strangers and what happens if you can be genuine in the moment that of the space that you're both sharing, what those exchanges can be in like 30 seconds, two minutes or less. You can have impactful moments with people in the shortest bit of time that will change the course of your day if you're willing to be vulnerable and open and see that person as not just like an impediment to where you're trying to go 
but a moment for exchange. And I think what we lack, like the upside, obviously, of what we have in our information digital age is incredible. Like we're connected, we have access to all of the things. Like there's nothing that's happened in the world that you can't like just be like, hey, what happened on this day? But like we have it all. But that we've come to diminish the importance of actual human connection. And, and that's one thing that I think that came from going and doing this trip and doing, experiencing this, this, um, the grandmother energy of the ayahuasca was like, yo, we are all connected. That's so fascinating to me. Like we are all so energetically connected. It's ridiculous. And the idea that we are masquerading like that's not the case via the convenient structures of race and borders and economics and shit that like has nothing to do with whether or not you will live or die in this body, in this journey, the manner in which we've created all of these, who you pray to, how you eat, the manner that we've created all these these hurdles and subsets and people fighting to get on the top of a hill that you'll never be able to hold as a way to like prop oneself up and feel important is ludicrous. Yeah. It's like it's the biggest fucking hoax ab- about the, this like our society. Yeah. It's a hoax. We're living in our heads and just kind of bouncing off these interactions, but still in this very insular space. But I've had a few experiences in my life, like you're talking about, where you tap into this other plane and realize, like, whether it's your girlfriend or some, like, we exchange so much information because we're so connected without verbal communication. Yeah. Like she knows what I'm thinking. I yeah. know what she's thinking. Just acknowledgement. Making yeah. someone feel seen. Right. A nod of a head. A smile. You know, being in a situation where something clearly not cool is happening and being able to look around and check and lock eyes with someone and be like, you're in the... We're connected. We're connected. But the interesting part about the ayahuasca is tapping into the generational thing. To be able to then hit that new plane where you're seeing things that your grandparents experienced. That was radical. That was... That part I get was, it was, was, and it made so much sense. Like, I found my identity. Like, I literally came out of that being like, oh, I know my identity. Yeah. I am a warrior of compassion. That is literally, like, who I am. And I've seen, I've seen the steps and the highs and lows of the generations that came before me that, that have me in this spot. And I understand myself so much better now. Yeah. Warrior of compassion. I'm going to fight for for the downtrodden and I'm going to do the, my best that I can to be a person of empathy and compassion. Um, and if that means sometimes I have to put my foot in your ass, I'm going to do so. But it, it comes from a place of, of love and compassion. That's who I am. Yeah. Am I perfect in it? No. Do I get shit wrong? All the fucking time. Yeah. But it's much better to understand that, like, for me, like, 
Ah, okay. It all makes that much more sense. With the benefit of that experience and looking back at the previous, I don't know. How old are you, by the way? I'm 48. Looking back at the previous couple of decades, um, what do you wish that you would have invested more time in? And what do you wish you had invested less time in? I wish that I would have um, invested more time in taking chances on the things that I have to give creatively as opposed to the relative safety of being compensated well to make other people's um, ideas come to life. What are the things that you have to give creatively? Um, my music, writing. Um, I moved to LA to act and I had some really great opportunities and then suddenly it was like, ah, no, like you can't do that. A lot of it was like this voice telling me in my head that you don't get to do that. I had plenty, a lot of opportunities to take certain things um, to another level if I had stuck with them. And it was this like, you're going to fail when you get there. So just like be over here and stay safe. That was your like, own internal dialogue. My own internal dialogue. Gotcha. And... The good thing is, like, there's no um, there's no time limit on that. Like, I'm sure I'm actively working now from a much more much more of a space of like the things that I have to give um, that I want to create as a producer um, of content um, as a, as a, as a voice um, in telling my stories. Um, Do you worry? Music. Do you worry that if you didn't exercise those things early in life, that it's a different experience now? Like you didn't, there's a creative energy that you have when you're young. And maybe it's that childlike thing that mm. I was talking about, the naivete, that now it's just a different version of those things. And you wish you would have exercised that muscle early in life. Or can you still exercise it now and get the same results? I can still exercise it. The, the results are just, they're going to be what they are today. I just wish that I would have gotten a head start 20 years ago when I was doing it quietly in my room and experimenting and doing the raddest shit that I would never share with anybody mm -hmm. um, as opposed to only in the last 10 years that I started doing it and, and making Alakazam records and you know putting myself out putting myself out there more and when I say myself like putting Salema Masakela into it more than Sal Masakela the character that everyone's gotten to know through um, being, you know, the 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 commentator, the narrator, the narrator, the putter into context of other people's great moments, which I love. But yeah, um, you've talked about writing a couple of times. Is that pursuit mainly for music, or do you have other writing that you do? Um, it's mainly for music, but also like there's a there's a there's a memoir that's fighting to come out. And Why'd it's, you laugh to say that? You feel embarrassed by that? I think sometimes, yeah. Feels a little vain? It feels vain. Yeah. Yeah. But I also know that, like, what I lived to get here and the time that it happened in, that ain't never going to happen again. And I feel like 
I get too many notes from kids saying, hey, I need you to know that you operating in the manner that you do in a space where most people don't look like you, 99.9% of the people don't look like you, and you figuring out a way to like rise in those spaces and then being a a, a storyteller to the world of like a, what a whole culture is like that allowed me to be different in the spaces I was that I grew up in and not just kids kids young adults etc that's always like the theme and people and I never knew that that's how people yeah because that's not a story that you a storyline that you push no that's that would the be way like, they experience it and that would be super weird and self-serving for me to like walk around and be like hey everyone <laughs> I am uh I'm setting a, a, the tone for, for, for all these people that you can't see, but they're coming. Like, I never, ever, ever, ever no. would, have, would have thought of the, no. that, that, that way. And I think also, too, because like the other thing that kids always ask me is, like, how can I do what you do? And I, whenever I stop and, and, and hear them say that, I'm like, well, shit, I don't know what the physical steps are because it's a different time. And what happened to me was like a bunch of radical accidents. But I know what the through line was of where I was at and where my, my head was at and my passions and my dedications and the things that happened to me and the people who supported me and what I did with those opportunities. That's a story I can tell. Gotcha. And so I feel like, yeah. Um, and that coupled with a very unique upbringing between, you know, my father and my mother and my crazy upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness. I didn't I, know about that. Yeah. That um, I didn't really leave until I was like 27, 28. Yeah. And the back end of what that was like, negotiating like this new life and fame while at the same time, like this immense amount of guilt that like you're a dead man walking because you left the church and like yeah there's just I, I think the more that I talk about it the more I realize there are people who identify yeah a lot of people well so that that's incentive to write the memoir um, but I would I was gonna before you said those things I, I was gonna encourage you just write it without the intention of ever publishing it and even if you do write it with the intention of just catharsis yeah just get it out it's a unique story everybody's story is unique everyone has a story and they're all unique and retrospection and like reflection on your life has a tremendous amount of value. And if you have a skill set or a interest as a writer, then you have to. Yeah. And that's how I've been writing. Like I've just been writing stories. Yeah. Nonlinear, just like Perfect. an event, a story, write and go. And it, like you said, it's like, whoa, okay. That's, that's crazy. I've been writing a lot by hand lately. Yeah. Good. Um, just let it flow. There's there's something about watching the cursor and having the op option to press delete. I know that. Um, yeah, it can get messy, and right. you're lying. I feel this. You edit before you, you edit write. before you write, yeah. which is the dumbest thing ever. Yeah, not the dumbest thing ever. It's a natural, it's an ego thing. But it's prohibitive to what you're trying to, to what do. you're trying to get out. So, um, where does alcohol fit into your life? I drink on occasion. I don't drink uh, regularly anymore. Like, I used to drink 
I used to like have booze in the house and like come home and have a couple of drinks and now and I and go to the party and be like let's go like when there was an event and there were a lot of events <laughs> and the culture when you're coming up especially in the action sports industry it was like send it on the mountain in the water and on the skateboard or whatever and then like send it in at into the night it's a big just natural and i did it for a long time and i did it well until um it just doesn't serve you anymore in it waking up with a hangover is not fun you just don't feel as good and so yeah i just i just don't really drink that much anymore i enjoy a drink here and there that's what i was going to ask why not if those things are all true then why not just abstain um i think i think everybody has a different way that they find peace with substance um i think some people need to you know they choose to go to a 12-step or whatever um because it's an addiction in their life and for me it i don't feel like it was ever an addiction it just was something that it was an easy way to like just like let go and drink heavily socially um but it was i never i never got to that place where like i need to drink alcohol sure like i need to drink every day um and i still i enjoy it for what it is like amongst friends and socially so i just I got to a place where I was like, okay, I'm going to save it for occasions. And on those occasions, I'm going to have a couple of drinks as opposed to like, you know, where are we going after this? Yeah. Uh, certainly with plant-based, quote, drugs, mm-hmm. weed, ayahuasca, mushrooms, stuff like that. There's dangers and there's downsides, but there's also tremendous use usefulness with those things and certainly medicinal usefulness alcohol is one thing that for some reason is more socially acceptable but has zero beneficial effect yeah like it's strictly downside yeah you know and and not to even say that i mean i drink yeah i'm not saying i don't drink um it has maybe upside in terms of like loosening your personality but there's no medical upside and there's no even like the phenolic compounds in wine that they say could be cancer preventative you can Mm. get that out of acai or blueberries or other things you know well go to italy and try and tell them that let me know how it goes fair enough you know and i (laughs) go to bordeaux and um make that argument and let me know how it goes do you know how into wine i am are you that dude? Super that right. dude, man. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm huge into it. So I'm not I'm not advocating against those things. It's a part of my daily life, but I intellectually at least acknowledge that when I have conversations with people like yourself, um, or I feel like Laird Hamilton has talked about this too, where it's like, what's one thing that you could go back that you would do less of or not do? And he's like, I would have stopped drinking a long time ago. Right. You know. He also like. He was doing two bottles a night. Like he had, he was full scent. Totally. <laughs> he didn't want to be in the that way of that hurricane. That seems to be how he lives his life. <laughs> yeah. dude. it's a full scent. Um, yeah, I, I, there's all different ways. Like I think for people to find a, um, an outlet 
that can go from recreation or something like not horrible but not bad for you to like bad for you of course um food totally um sex sex data um there's just so many different ways to like run and hide yeah and for me it's it's just been about like how can i optim i'm i'm working towards how can i literally like maximize the most of my 24 hours in the day and like i'm i, I get up now at like 5:45 at the latest pretty much every day i'm in bed by like 10:30 wow <laughs> i'm like old man masakela old man masakela <laughs> old man masakela is up at the crack of dawn and is like Let's go to the gym. Let's go surf. Let's go to breath and meditation. Let's, you know, write. Let's, like, live. Yeah. Um, which is how I was as a young man for a very long time. Like, I took great pride in, in my 20s. My, like, up, yeah, my late teens through, like, my mid to early 20s in being the first guy in the water. And like getting saluted by the old old dudes, being mm-hmm. like, "All right, look who's out already," right. you know, and like earning your hierarchy. Now you're that old dude. Then now I'm that dude. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why that dude was out early is because he woke up to pee. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I'm still getting like a straight eight, um, which is great. Uh, and I'm doing like. Like the ayahuasca was just like part of like a whole host of things that I'm interested in in overall wellness yeah. from like between the ears and the chest, which I think, you know, we we talk so much about exercise and nutrition, but between the ears and and the chest, you know, and, and the heart, that's where it all is. Yeah. You know, that's where it all is. So I'm... I'm I'm having fun focusing in that space. Uh, was there any downside to the ayahuasca experience? Not as of yet. Okay. Interesting. Not, um, as, not, as, not as of yet. I mean... What in regard to... I'll put it to you this way. Okay. In the wake of the experience, I'm waking up every day with a dominant voice of self-love okay and the voice that tells you all the things that you know you can't do or you shouldn't try is the minimal voice for a long time the dominant voice was like here you go again you don't really think you can keep this up can you you had a great run for 20 years but like who are you what do you have to give hang it up and figure out all different ways to like sabotage, sabotage like great opportunities because like ah and people would be like yo you've been killing it forever like what do you mean like it probably didn't hear me say that but that's what it was and I'm telling you the shit is flipped now and I'm walking around with that voice that loves himself before anybody else can as the operating driving force in all the things that I want to do at a family level with my with my family, my relationships with my friends, and in the shit that I want to do and create and manners in which I want to serve um, 
my community. Like that's, and it's actively what I'm working to do every day. It's like, I did lots of great like body work and shit to take care of myself with fitness and stuff that I have been doing for a while in the midst of all these other challenges as, as many people are listening, you know, um, do the difference being now in hindsight was like, I felt like I was doing all that stuff to literally keep my lips above water. And now I feel like I'm actually on top of the water in a small but sturdy boat with, with a, a good double-sided oar. And now the things that I do to take care of myself as a whole and the self-care can actually be towards progress and that I can guide that progress as opposed to like to just stay with my head above water. That's what... That's the place I'm trying to like operate from. I know the answer to this question kind of on an emotional or spiritual level because you just kind of identified it and throughout you have been. But what have you not accomplished professionally that you would like to accomplish? Like moving forward for the next decade of your life, what does your ideal professional life look like? And I know this flies in the face because it might be more superficial and more No, it's not driven. superficial. Okay. Like- it's not superficial at all. Okay. Like, what did we say earlier? Everybody wants to be seen and heard. Validated. Validated? Oprah said it. Yeah, Oprah said it. <laughs> you don't want that. You don't want that cease and desist lawsuit from Oprah to come through. <laughs> that lawyer team would be like, um, so, Oprah got wind of you plagiarizing. How do you want to handle this? I accept it. As long as she heard my <laughs> voice or got wind from me, I'm in. Um, What's your ultimate goal professionally? Professionally... Um, to produce, to, to, to really provide platforms and opportunities to, to make great stories come alive and to shepherd them from creative to actually like selling and getting them on the air. I'm really, I'm, that's the mode I'm in right now, which is development um, and production and making, making them come to life. I really enjoy producing. Uh, in front of the camera, it's uh, to continue to be um, a, a stronger storyteller of, of life. Like I'm really, m- m- this next phase for me feels like an opportunity to like take people on journeys um, and tell stories in a manner that continue to reinforce uh, the incredible ways in which we are connected. Uh- who are you working with currently in that capacity? I'm working with, I'm going to drop something, right? A name. Um, but it's only because it's legit and not because I'm trying to drop a name. But I have partnered with Morgan Freeman on a project um, with him and his, um, his company, Revelation Studios. Uh, and we're actively out. We just, we're out pitching this week. And um, <laughs> it's just, such a weird thing <laughs> and you're on screen and he's say. production or are you guys both uh, on screen? i'm on screen and um he and his company would serve as executive producers gotcha um which is crazy that's a big one dude um that came from on the back end of vice world of sports getting the opportunity to do some work at nat geo explorer and then morgan freeman has a show called the story of god yep and he was looking for someone to be like a um substitute hitter DH to come off the bench to do the stories that he couldn't do 
And so I did two of them for them this year. They liked what I did. I liked working with them. I brought them an idea and said, hey, do you guys seem like you'd be great to, to make this with? And they agreed in the room. They bought it in the room. Huge. And so now we're out um, taking it out. Uh, so Congrats. Thanks. It's huge. It's really, really cool. And um, we'll see where it goes. Um, but yeah, more of that. More of that. From the producing side, are you interested? What medium or platform are you interested in? Um, episodic documentary, scripted, feature? Episodic documentary um, is my, I think, my present strong house. That's what I'm, I've gotten good at. And yeah. Vice World of Sports was like the real perfect training ground for that. Um, but I'd like to get into more feature documentary work. And when I say feature documentary, I think what that means in this new digital age, you know, feature documentary these days, I think can be 20 minutes. It can be 90 minutes. You know, there's, there, there are enough platforms out there to be able to, to, to tell those even shorter stories in a feature documentary style. And that's where I'd like, that's where I'm most excited to tell stories within our space. What's like our with, space? Within, within um, surf culture. I was going to ask. Yeah. Are there, I mean, it's almost boring to me, to be honest. Like, I, I don't know that there's that, uh, even though I dedicate almost all of my time to this space. Like, when I go home and turn on Netflix, I don't want to watch a surf documentary. And it might just be because I'm saturated in it. I don't are think, there interesting stories to tell? I think there are super interesting stories to tell. I don't think anybody wants to, wants to watch a surf documentary. But I think that if the culture can be a lens into people, um, places, cultures, and stories of human beings, um, that no matter whether you surfed or not, you're drawn to it, then that's exciting. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, your standard like surf documentary, no interest. But it can't I, be about surfing. No. It has to be about the person. You know? It has to be about the person. It has to be about, um, you know, the socioeconomic, you know, different cultural landscapes, etc. Um, that make us who we are. I just watched the HBO 24-7 on Slater. I have it in the DVR, but I haven't yet. It's bore, It's watch. a bore fest. I mean, it's precisely what you and I were just saying we shouldn't do anymore. And I... No slight against Kelly. No. No slight against the producers because they executed their goal for that audience. It right. was meant to just be like an introduction into what surfing is for people who don't know what surfing is. Right. And here's this important figure. Right. But for your and my viewing, it was just like, oh my gosh. Are You're you the kidding? second person to tell me that. Someone told me that last night at a holiday party. Yeah. And it's fine. And what was cool about it is it's timely. Like it was covering the Holly Eve event that just happened. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like this right. is relevant for news, but didn't, didn't go deep. They didn't go deep. Not at all. Not at all. Huh. Um, There's such an opportunity there to go deep. I mean, this dude is doing what no one of any athlete of any age has ever done before. Um, and is doing so in a manner that defies logic while also like having he's in the midst of like his own fucking radical midlife crisis there's no doubt like, what, is, what is this midlife crisis i don't know come on i don't know <laughs> well what's he what's he struggling with i what does it appear to you appear to be to you on the outside 
Relevance and longevity. He addresses it in that. He has one sentence in that that addresses it. One sentence. Yeah, where he says he wants to burn the battery out to the bitter end. Yeah. And I, I go, my view on it is like, dude, you should have retired a few years ago. Like, don't go out getting beaten by way lesser surfers. So the point is, why? So that's the story. Yeah, that exactly. I, that that I I think and everyone else would want to watch is and knows why. Totally. Well, because I would have told him the same thing ten years ago when Andy was beating him, and he proved me wrong. You know, it's like he comes back and then wins five more world titles. So I find myself giving that advice in my head while I'm watching the television show. Um, I'm past the point of him needing to retire especially after i as long as you as you're making it and you're still fucking taking these kids about around the woodshed for me he's like do you think he's not though that's the problem i don't know man Hollywood and sunset those were those were award-winning performances there were moments come on there were moments Hollywood. he did the one turn it wasn't just the one turn it was it was it was three heats of like the first heat was whatever, second and third heat were incredible, and then he had a bad heat, like anyone else could have um, in the quarters. But up until then, he was surfing at another level. The surfing he did at Sunset was fucked up. The surfing he did at Sunset was fu- and listen, I'm the first to be super critical of dude. Yo. The serving he did at Sunset was like, everyone was like, oh shit, look at this dude out here on a 6-4. Not at even, a, was it? 6-2. At a wave that he hates, and he's doing some other shit. First, two, those two heats, like he was doing other shit. It was gorgeous. And he's just, he's surfing really well right now. And you know he's got a chance to win pipe. For sure. That's the thing. If the waves are good at big barreling, like he is the best in the world. John John maybe can watching Kelly with him. Slater in of course. Two, watching Kelly Slater in two to four foot surf against twenty two year olds is extremely, extremely heartbreaking to watch. Yeah. Especially since he is so damn good. Yeah. But watching him against children who fly five feet in the air at will, it's like it's like the cape is gone. So what is interesting to me, in addition to what you said about that documentary and the story that we actually want to hear told, is his struggle. Like, he wants to invest in these businesses. He probably wants to invest in personal relationships, you know, where he's not flying around the world all the time. It just takes time to be there physically. Like, he has all these other interests, but he's still holding on to this competitive thing that has inhibited growth in these other areas of his life, I would presume. And I acknowledge, I go, hey, dude, you've already won everything a million times over. You can let go of the competitive thing and just invest all of that energy into these other things rather than trying to spread it too thin. That's what I'm confused yeah. about, is why don't you give up this competitive? You've, there's nothing. I don't want to see him trying to to go for a world title. Like, yeah, you got to surf snapper at two feet. I, it's I don't want to see that. Yeah. But, like, do I want to see him continue to compete through his 50s with wild cards 
where he shows up and like just smashes people in waves of consequence. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to see that He'll win for, those events. forever. Yeah. But I I'm super, super excited and curious for like the finality post world tour, Kelly Slater and what that looks like. But that being said, he still has he he's earned the right to still be there. It breaks our hearts because we want to see the next chapter. Um, and it's up to him whether for detriment or not. Like we got to watch the, the manner in which he plays out. And there is this fucked up thing about like like you said like. Ten years ago, he surprised the fuck out of you in a way, at a time when you never thought he would. And this weekend, these last two weeks, he surprised the fuck out of everybody and did so in a like the most disruptive of manners. Like, oh, I'm gonna ride this five three that you guys have been mocking me for in ten foot Haleiwa and do shit no one's ever fucking thought of. Carving three. I'm just gonna like go out here and play yeah. and continue to show you that like. I'm looking at this whole thing through lenses that you all cannot comprehend. Yeah. And much to your frustration, that's kind of always who I'm going to be. Yeah. And so we have to um to wait and see. I still think he could fucking I still think he could he could hang it up. I mean, this thing will probably be out, but I still think he could hang it up at pipe. Wouldn't be beyond him to take a bow. If he won the event, I could see him doing that, just to go out on top. But if he doesn't, but I you don't tell see him again, retiring. again, if he doesn't, do you think that he's just going to give John John a slot into the Olympics because hey, man, it's your time. No. I'm going to pass you the torch. No, fuck no. So that's the thing. <laughs> Me saying I want to see him retire and enjoy the rest of his life is not acknowledging that he enjoys compet- competition more than any of those other things. So that's why he's still competing. Play, that's what he enjoys. Go play a game of ping pong against him. Yeah. And get scared. Yeah. Did you see that video clip this morning of Benji Weatherly uh, winning? winning? Yeah. I Someone sent it to me, but I haven't watched it's it so yet. so funny, dude. Benji's so funny. It was Slater filming it. Yeah. yeah I heard so he had just funny. gone live and then like pans over. Or something. And Benji makes the and shot makes and the just rips wins. his shirt off. Does like a somersault, rolls down the hill. Like, it's so good. I got to watch it. Um, uh, do you want to discuss your upcoming podcast? Speaking of um, hmm. storytelling in different platforms. Yes. What do you got? I'm launching a podcast called What Shapes Us. Uh, it should be out mid-February, the latest. And I'm excited. It's a medium that... I enjoy, and I've enjoyed playing in with people like yourself uh, and others who um, grace me with the opportunity to, to, to be a guest on their shows. But I finally realized like, I'd, I'd like to, to, to have those conversations as well and have people come, come and sit with me. It's fun. And it's super fun. I've started recording a bit, and it's basically about like what it is, what shapes us, the things, the, the events... Um, nature, nurture, that force us to choose our directions, um, and that which we're doing at all times. Yeah. And for me, being able to have those type of conversations with 
successful and accomplished people in their spaces less about their success and more about like the hard shit um seems like way more fun yeah so what uh where are you pulling guests from what area surf world music i'm pulling guests from my entire world music politics activism surfing skateboarding snowboarding science like i'm i I think i've i've had the ability to to make some really interesting and unique relationships that i thought i'd never have because of getting to work in these various different platforms and um i think that i i I think those are the i want to to have conversations with everybody it'd be easy just to do like some killers, fucking action sports, whatever, you know. Um, I could, that's a thing. I could do it. Probably have fun at it. But I would like to make some stuff of record. Yeah. Like from here on out, like the stuff I do, I just would like it to be of record and less of commentary. Um, yeah, good. Good. And I think in terms of the guest list, like, I would rather listen to you talk to people that I've never heard of that are outside of the surf world than hear you just talk to surfers that I get to see all the time. Just yeah. Like I mean, as- occasionally. And listen, you have to make it a Trojan horse of sorts for um, well, to get eyeballs. No. Or, I, but I, the, So there will be those big guests. Yeah. I but guess- it, it, the effort is to have a different conversation with those people than, than you may have heard before. Well, the reason why I've said what I said or the way, way I've view it that way is um i want to know about you and your life isn't just one thing Mm-mm. you have all these different influences and so i want to know what your influences are 100 you're a more interesting person if you have a diverse set of influences and which i know you do so that's what that's it's gonna be it's gonna from. be yeah. all those things and it's gonna be a bit of like telling the stories you know yeah. of yeah. of how i've how i've arrived here and, and just some of the the just the crazy shit that's happened along the way. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, it, that's the, as you know, you told me this a long time ago. You know, this thing travels well. And I travel a shit ton. And the ability to be able to like pack light and go have the conversations all over the world as opposed to like, and, and you know, doing it in a set place is, that's, that's fun to me. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I've been doing. Uh, final question, which was the same final question last time we talked, is what was the last surfboard that you rode? The last surfboard that I rode, I have to get the proper name of it so I don't fuck it up. And was it recently? It was three weeks ago. I hurt my knee, um, but I'm getting back in the water. I strained my I, I've been skating. Oh, brutal. And having a blast at it, the Cove Park in Santa Monica, it's amazing. There's a great adult night, and I've been skating a bunch. And then I strained it, and then I heard it again at um, Red Bull Rampage, climbing down the course, and I hit like some shale rock and dirt and slid and caught the bad knee. And yeah, but I've been doing all sorts of treatment. Acupuncture has really like been the, like, the last bit, um, so I'm back. But the last board that I rode is... A Earth Technologies. The name of it is the Electrical Ninja. I haven't seen that model. It's pretty it's rad. Ryan Harris Ryan in the Harris. South Bay makes Earth Tech. Earth E-tech. Tech. It's 5'8". Um, all made from recycled blanks. 
and it is a, it is a that dude's he's on some next shit. He really is, and I think it's a zero waste factory. Zero waste factory. Yeah, the first surfboard zero. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Ryan's just. I first met Ryan at the Inertia Summit, the first one they did um, up here, and his panel was before mine. And here's this dude. Like, first of all, I didn't know that there was a black shaper who was like leading the conversation, and like a super science geek shaper in zero waste, like progression of of surfboards. And right around your corner. By and the right way. around the corner. So I'm sitting there and I was like, what? Like, this is amazing. Yeah. And some people might be listening. Well, come on, bro. Like, what, what does that have to do with anything? Um, what that has to do with anything is that if you don't see yourself places, you don't know that you can do something. So it's not less about me and more about like kids in the future. And the idea that like, you know, as we people of color are starting to make our way and make a real charge now into helping to be part of the identity of surf culture as opposed to like, oh, look at those cool, weird black surfers. Like, we're a part of the conversation. Um, it's just rad. Like, Shaper was just, Shaper at that level here in Southern California, like making a difference in the conversation. That makes me proud as fuck. It was just a moment. And we had so much that we were able to talk about as far as barriers to entry and not being taken seriously because people and their implicit biases and assumptions, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I still watch people's brain break when he's talking to them and he starts, like, really breaking it down. and like, oh, yeah, shit, this dude's for real. Yeah. <laughs> because they just don't, they're, they're trying to comprehend the package. Totally. And it's dope. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I saw what he was making and I saw how other people were writing down in the South Bay and then finally I was like he hit me up he's like you want to do a board and I was like yes I want to do a couple sweet and that board is that's been really really fun awesome. rides great as a twin like with with those Rob Machado twin twin kills the Machado ones that he designed for the seaside yep. throw those in there ride it as a quad ride it as a as a thruster it's really really fun surfboard sweet awesome well Sal Kayla, always a pleasure dude thank you um, was this two two years for us Jeez, maybe two years and change. Could be at yeah. least two years, I would say. And now look at you, international superstar. Look at me now, <laughs> thriving. <laughs>
Everything that Sal and I discussed, some of his on-air hosting work, the books that he recommended, his music, it's all available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned disclaimers. Ayahuasca has been discussed in celebrity culture a lot in recent years and featured comedically, usually in movies. A teenage boy in Costa Rica was killed on his motorcycle under the influence of ayahuasca after hearing about famous surfers traveling to a local resort to try the plant. And he wasn't in a guided experience nor a controlled environment, but his story and others are certainly worth noting alongside the positive experiences that people are sharing. So ayahuasca came up in conversation on a podcast I did back in 2017, and it stimulated this email from a listener who is a doctor in the Department of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. He said, quote, I just wanted to let you know that your guest's description of the neurobiology underlying the psychedelic effects of ayahuasca were pretty off base. The fact of the matter is that we don't really understand how any hallucinogenics, let alone ayahuasca, works on the level of individual neurons, brain regions, or interactions between brain regions. I fear describing ayahuasca's effects in this manner may sway people to believe we know a lot about how it works and therefore its safety. Regardless of its reported benefits in the short term, we know very little about its effects in the long term, which may be quite detrimental. I just think that you should always present the positives and negatives when discussing any medicine. Love the podcast. Happy to talk about this stuff more if you want. If you're ever in Boston, let me know and we can get together for a surf. The waves are actually pretty good, end quote. So hush, hush on that little surf detail, but certainly heed his professional assessment I've also received this email from a listener recently who offered a good list of books for anybody who's interested in this subject matter. I'll go ahead and read the full email to you, though. He says, um, quote, I'd maybe not call it a drug per se as much as a medicine. I do think that it's actually hyper beneficial and quite unlike anything else, even DMT. Society would very likely be greatly improved if everyone had these experiences, provided they're introduced to it and shepherded through it via proper mentors, kind of like how surfing should be. The participants themselves should ideally be open-minded, open-hearted, introspective, respectful, humble, and committed to the mental, spiritual, and physical preparation work prior to the experience. Unfortunately, it's become a trendy thing to do, and there's a lot of tourism around this, much of which ends in either fake experiences or worse. While I do encourage many people to at least learn more about it, I do think that when the media presents it to audiences, it's helpful and important to offer some extra context and warning to people interested in pursuing it. I'd encourage everyone interested to start by reading, and then these are the names of the books, which I'll also include on surfsplendorpodcast.com if you want to uh, click over to Amazon and grab them. The first one is called The Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby. The second one was one that Sal mentioned, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. The third is The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide by Fardiman. The fourth is, or the fifth is Supernatural by Glenn Han- Graham Hancock. And then Terrence McKenna's True Hallucinations. Back to his email, quote, all of these books, even non-participants would really find engaging and interesting. Also, any group that's legit will carefully vet the participants through an acceptance process 
So it's a telltale sign for the negative if you're accepted without question. If it's the real deal, it's not like you're just going to buy a ticket for the ride. It's a sacred thing and a birthright for all humanity, a medicine and tool to experience ourselves in multidimensional contexts as humans, as some atomic particles, and the entirety of the multiverse, everything beautifully connected. For many people, it's a singular transcendent experience that shifts everything. And for many others, it's self-work done with regularity. It has spiritual and practical benefits that are hard to overstate or even scratch the surface of, end quote. So I'm sure that I'll be receiving much more feedback and probably more reprimanding that I should have been including additional uh, disclaimers. But that's all good, and this will probably come up in future podcast conversations anyway, so I could just include those then. With that said, I do always appreciate um, your thoughtfulness, kindness, feedback, and grace. And then, of course, like I said, I've posted all of that reference material on surfsplendorpodcast.com. In closing, um, I'm also uploading all of our episodes onto YouTube now. Um, so eventually I'll begin filming stuff and then posting videos of the interviews and certainly conversations with Chaz and Scott. But until then, I'm going to be working through our archives to upload all of our past shows. So follow that channel if you'd like. And then that's a great way just to share it with friends and post on social media. We also have a Spotify channel, which I haven't mentioned nearly enough. I've been doing it basically since the beginning. Um, people often ask about the music used in these episodes, Lots of inquiries about the Dick Metz music selections. So you can find individual playlists for every episode of Surf Splendor. And then I also have one giant playlist that is every song that I've ever used in every single episode. It's a 20-hour long playlist. So just search for Surf Splendor. And that search will probably pull up the podcast as well. So you can either listen to the podcast or search for the user Surf Splendor. And that'll give you access to the music. Um, I also always include the music in the credits at the bottom of each show's page on surfsplendorpodcast.com. So you can just scroll down and find the music really easily there too if you don't have Spotify. So lastly, rate and review the show in whatever podcast app you use. That pushes us through the algorithm and helps strangers to find us. And that is all. Scott Bass just informed me that he's at Surf Expo this week, so Spit is getting postponed until next week. I'll be back on the grit with Chaz on Friday and then back here next Wednesday. So until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor uh, saying a huge thanks to Sal Masakela for always being so candid and vulnerable and also reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. Na 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 na